I've spent, you know, weeks asking white people, what is it you need to trust will or won't happen before you can work on racism? And what it came down to was just, I need to trust you won't think I'm racist before I can work on my racism. Citizen Podcast. Welcome to Citizen Podcast. I'm your host, Carrie Kelly. In this episode, we're talking about white fragility with the woman who coined the phrase, Robin D'Angelo. She's been training on issues of racial and social justice for over 20 years. Her groundbreaking book, White Fragility, explores why it's so hard for white people to talk about racism and what we can do to engage more constructively. All right, white folks, this episode is for you. Not because you are special, but because you and me have some catching up to do in theory and practice around white supremacy and racism. Our guest, Robin D'Angelo, wrote the book White Fragility, which is an in-depth examination of the defensive moves that white people make when confronting or challenged with racism. White fragility can look like anger or fear or guilt or tears or just about anything that allows us to escape our discomfort. And it's not just causing harm to the people of color we are engaged with. It is holding us back from any kind of meaningful dialogue and work across lines of difference. Now, for all of you thinking, this is not me, I'm a good white person. No, this is you. And it's also me. Because racism isn't just about bad people, it's about a system and culture that is designed to uphold white dominance. And as I discovered in reading her book, the behaviors attributed to fragility are more subtle than you think, because that's how white supremacy and cultural racism works. It's insidious and often invisible, especially to those who benefit. And in this episode, you'll hear Robin say, the game is up. You are a racist. And when we can get there, when we can acknowledge how and when and where we are being racist, then we can get to work. I am one of those people. And this conversation unlocked a whole other level of my own racism and really challenged me to reckon with where am I still actively participating in white supremacy? How am I attached to the unearned benefits it affords me? And what am I willing to risk so that we can all get free? What I've learned is that we can survive our discomfort and fragility, but we may not survive the violence of white supremacy. So this episode is both a reckoning and a call to action for all of us who are ready to do what is necessary to transform ourselves from the inside out. Here we go. Let's get started. Hello. Welcome, Robin D'Angelo. Hi. Thanks. So I have a million questions for you. And as I mentioned before we got started, in almost every conversation that we have at Citizen Well about dismantling racism and, and raising consciousness, we invoke you and your work around white fragility. So thank you for giving us a vocabulary yeah. for this conversation. Yeah. And thank you uh, for the acknowledgement. So um, I want to start at the beginning and ask you about that moment. I think there's always a moment for white folks who are on this path um, of waking up to racial consciousness when 
we become aware of our whiteness, when we become aware of our race, that we have been, it's almost like the illusion, right, that we have been living under, that we've been operating from our whole life. And for me, and I've, I've heard this from other white folks, it, it can be a gut-wrenching moment, right, when we realize that we've been operating from a place of illusion and from a place of of lies, really, and indoctrination for so long, and that it's had a real harmful impact on the lives of other people. And so what was that moment for you? You know, I was um, sitting, I can tell you where I was sitting, right? I, I can tell you the room. But just to back up, you know, I've been a proudly angry feminist for most of my life, right? I grew up in poverty. Um, I, I had a very acute awareness of inequality and oppression. And I could tell you in great detail all the ways that I had been oppressed or had less, but never occurred to me to think about where I had more, right? Never occurred mm. to me to think about where I may be colluding with someone else's oppression. It's just kind of the missing piece of the coin, right? When you experience heavy oppression, that's where your focus is. And so I'm sitting in a friend's office, is a black woman, and she gives me Peggy McIntosh's white privilege article. And I had an out-of-body experience, right? It was like this moment when I, I realized, oh my God, I have a racial worldview and it's white. Mm-hmm. It's like that fish being taken out of water. I, I would right. not have been able to tell you I had a racial worldview. I mean, I just saw the world through my human eyes. But in that moment, I realized, no, I see the world through white eyes. Um, And then I got this almost like an image of myself standing on the ground. And I had always understood that there were people under me. And that was tragic that they were, you know, lower, right? Uh, in, In my mind, I thought about Black people. And I understood that they were kind of stood upon. But I suddenly realized, no, you're not just standing on level ground and some people are below you. You're elevated. You're lifted up above that ground. And I actually didn't want to go outside the room. I didn't want to go outside. I felt so hyper-conscious of being white that I thought it was loud and everybody could see it, you know, because for me in that moment, it was really loud. I think what's really important, however, is that that didn't last. And years later, you know, I signed up to to be a diversity trainer and I'm still running the same oblivious patterns because it wasn't sustained. I mean, along with it wasn't the, and you better keep your focus here or you will lose it. Right. Right. It's a lot like water dripping on a rock. And what I often say to groups of people is that everything I've shown you today that I've helped you see today, the moment you leave this room, all the forces will push you not to see this anymore. And you, they'll be seductive because you don't really want to see this, do you? Because it means something. It, It challenges our identities as good people. It requires something of us that we don't really want to give, right? I mean, this is not a small task. So without that sustained pressure and accountability, so even though there was that moment, really for me, it's been a a decades-long process. Right. And it's never complete. It almost sounds like what you're describing is recovery from addiction. Yeah. People have used that analogy. And if it's useful, I don't have any immediate you know, problem yeah. with it. I'm sure people have critiqued that analogy. I, it, it makes sense 
right? That you're, you're never free of the addiction, right? right. But you can maybe manage it. <laughs> That's right. To the best of your ability in, harm. with practice and community and ongoing commitment and accountability and diligence. Mm-hmm. So I want to ask about, um, cause in the book you talk about how we need to understand socialization better. Yes. And that's the water I think that you're describing that we swim in and that we can't yeah. see because we're the fish. Yeah. <laughs> and I know for me, that's how my racism has shown up throughout my whole life. It hasn't been so overt and obvious, um, as like, like direct words or actions, yep. but it's been more stylistic, like mm. um, the culture of white supremacy that Tema Oaken talks about. And like the way it showed up for me is in my perfectionism yeah. <laughs> and in the way in which like I had to be perfect at all costs, right? Even as an ally or in the way in which I felt entitled to take the lead in rooms or in collaboration or to take responsibility or project manage spaces, right? Like those were the more insidious ways and Mm -hmm. subtle ways that I think my racism not just showed up, but really like impacted and oppressed the people that I, I was working with. And so I'd love to hear from you, like, what do we need to learn and understand about the ways in which we've been shaped by systems and by culture? Like, what do we need to unpack to better see the whiteness that we've been indoctrinated into? Okay, nice deep question. I, <laughs> I take notes as I'll lose all the great places you went in that question. So the first thing is we are all in water um, and there are currents in the water. So, so people of color mm. are in that water too and they're being conditioned and their minds are being colonized. And you know all of that is happening for everybody, of course, with different results based on where we're positioned in the water in terms of the current. So I think about it as I move with the current and they're swimming against it. So Mm. we're both swimming, but the efforts, the outcome of my efforts in that current are drastically different. And you've ever swam with the current, you know that it's, you don't notice it's there until you just, whoa, man, did I get far, right? Just by swimming. When you swim against it, you're acutely aware of it, right? So that's just- That's a a great um, analogy. Metaphors work for me really well, so. yep. I think about it that way. It appears that most white people don't understand socialization. And I think uh, the irony is it's because one of the ideologies that's so precious in our culture is individualism. Now, it's only granted to white people uh, racially, right? I mean, I'm just a teacher, but uh, we mentioned a a dear friend, Michelle, she'll always be the black teacher, right? There's the writer and then there's the black writers or the Asian writers or, you know, so individualism has us thinking that we can be exempt, you know, that we're just unique. And even some of these new age kind of ideas, like find yourself, I I need to find myself. I need to be my true self. Like what, what is that? I mean, where it's this idea that there's some kind of intact, unique, special person in there that is untouched by anything. And that is just unchanging. No, I am different selves in different contexts. This is where I love graduate school. Okay. For all of my critiques, post-structural theory. <laughs> um, so we think we can just be exempt from all of this because we want to be. If we take a really, uh, it's not even a hard look once you start to see it, just look around. I mean, the messages are relentless. You know, children by three, all children who go up here by three years old know it's better to be white. Who doesn't know that? And you don't miss it. It, It's not an isolated singular message. It's just relentless. And, you know, you see it in in the the difference between 
whether people are literally going to survive their births to how long they're going to live, right? Like group identity matters. I, I, I don't think anybody would deny that when a baby is born and it's labeled boy or girl, the trajectory of its life is radically directed at that moment. You can fight it, but you cannot truly ever get away from it. I think we know this. Um, you're going to get deep messages uh, that are going to be different. It's the same with race. But when it comes to race, we just want to say, oh, it's just about fond regard. And as long as I have fond regard, you know, there's nothing happening. Okay, so um, the, the other piece I want to talk about Oh, and one way to get to it, I do offer a lot of questions in the book, kind of walk people through some questions that can help them get in touch with those early messages. Um, but you were naming some of the ways that your, your racism manifests, right? Because you and I uh, were never going to say the N-word. I mean, I, I cannot deny that I have very ugly racist thoughts that pop into my brain at times and, and uh, unsettle me. They're, they pop in. Uh, so that they're there, but I kind of am appalled by them and I'm never going to say those things. But that's part of the socialization, right? That yeah, we've been it, sort it, of indoctrinated. It, yeah. You've, your whole life, you've watched movies and that associate an image with a, with a word, right? And so you see somebody and pop goes that word, that term, right? So like I use this example of Trump and some people have misunderstood it, but I will say I, I don't actually think Trump is more racist than I am. I mean, he, I absolutely recognize what comes out of his mouth. When he says those things about Mexicans, it's not like I've never heard those things about that's Mexicans. I, I know I, that's a familiar narrative to me. The difference is I work really, really hard to challenge it right. in a couple of ways, right? To think critically about it, but also to have relationships with uh, Mexican heritage people and to see their humanity. The difference between us is he embraces and uses it for ends that I think are deeply uh, oppressive and problematic. But the essential socialization, we're in the same water. Yeah. And and um, you, you yeah. and I've heard you even say that that um, that you believe white progressives cause like the most daily harm to people of color. And, and that's, I think, what you're getting at. Yeah. Da daily harm. You have to think about it as um kind of a climate of hostility. It's not going to look that way to us. The example I like to use, I used to work with a black woman. We worked really hard. We were doing these trainings. And I actually said to her, let's get away for the weekend. Let's take a nice, quiet weekend up at Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. And she just like looked at me like, yeah, no, nah, that does not sound like a relaxing weekend, Robin. You know, a little tiny town up in Coeur d'Alene where the, you know, Aryan nation is building a compound, you know, right. at Hayden Lake, a few miles down the road. It just for me, everything's open. Right. And for her, that's a hostile climate. And right. maybe maybe I don't know if that image is right. Pretty little picturesque town. How could that not look attractive? But what is the climate Right. And why do I not see it? And why does she see it? Right. right. So I think white progressives, we just tend to be so um, attached to an identity of progressiveness that we can refuse any kind of feedback about what we're doing inadvertently. Right. We're so we tend to be so arrogant, so not humble, so sure. And 
we spend most of our time credentialing ourselves in ways that actually are not remotely convincing to people of color, right? They're rolling their eyes, but I'm just sure if you knew I saw Black Panther five times, you'd know I wasn't racist. Um, well, and even in allyship, I see like a lot of like proving and performing, right? In in the ways yep. in which we use the right words and we yep. have the right moves and it's, and yet we're, we still benefit, right? And then we're even benefiting from our allyship, which I think oh, isn't- I know, I know. Well, would, you know, I know my people really well. So right now, if any listeners going, oh, I give up, don't give up. That's <laughs> right. It, it reminds me of something a dear friend of mine once said, um, Melina Pinkham. She's an indigenous woman and she's in one of her, I'd say, rare moments of having some kind of compassion for my struggle. She said, wow, being a white person committed to anti-racism must be a little bit like being a cat on a hot roof. <laughs> There's nowhere you can step that you yeah. don't step in. And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. She said, uh, you just get stay up on that roof and you keep stepping. Well, and, and keep getting dirty, right? Yeah. And, don't and, expect to be free of it. I mean, watch yeah. where you're stepping, but don't expect that to. And you know, I mean, the last thing I wanted to own is what one of the ways my racism, I think, looks at. You talked about perfectionism and I think I think apathy. Apathy is really deep. I'm going to say something provocative. I think most white people don't actually care about racism or racial inequality. If you show us an extreme picture of somebody being beaten, of course, we will feel upset by that. But the incredibly unequitable outcomes day in and day out that all of our institutions produce, right? You know, I don't think we really care uh, that schools are profoundly unequal as long as my child has the best of everything. In fact, I kind of need schools, schools to be unequal or how would my child have the best of everything? My precious, unique, <laughs> I like to joke, I've never met a white middle-class person with an average child. Um, <laughs> well, and is it, I wonder if it's like that we don't care or that we care more about um, benefiting. Is it preference? Yeah, you know, um, I, I did, I, um, I co-wrote an article that it was called, um, we put it in terms of not nice, uh, uh-huh. anti-racist parenting. And it, we, we interviewed white parents who identified as, as anti-racists. Like, what are you doing differently um, in raising your children? And the bottom line was nothing but feeling more guilty about it. Um, <laughs> like they have more words yeah, they're more they educated feel, they on feel it. Bad about the gentrification. Yeah. They can right? go on social or, media and yell and shout yeah. about the yeah. injustice. Also, you know those moments of realizing um, a really powerful two two really powerful moments for me. One is like the highlight of my presentation. There's like an emotional peak to my presentation, and it's when I get to the end of talking about how race has shaped my life. And I say that I could, I could be born into, I could play, I could study, I could learn, I could work, I could lead, I could love, and I could die in racial segregation. And absolutely no one who's ever mentored me or guided me or loved me has ever conveyed that I've lost anything mm-hmm. of value. Mm-hmm. In fact, white people describe the value of our lives by the absence of people of color. I know, I know what a good school is. I know mm-hmm. what a good neighborhood is. I know what's happening when a neighborhood's coming up. These are such powerful messages. We, we have to understand, yes, that's the N word, 
And then there's calling a white neighborhood good, right? What, just, just pause for a minute. It's good because it's white. It's safe because they're not there. Those are very deep messages that we internalize. And I show a picture of my wedding and then I show a picture of our funeral and I said, it's all white. And I just say, why would my funeral not look like this? Why would not the end of my life be, you know, in segregation, like the the rest of how I've lived my life. So that, that was powerful. That's the place in which I got the deeper message and the place in which I try to help other white people see it. And then there's the moment when I realized that I actually thought people of color suffered less than we do. This is also a kind of a deep thing to say, but I, I was watching movie. It was actually Apocalypse Now. Mm-hmm. And there's a scene where they show all these, um, I guess they would be Cambodian people hanging from trees. And I just realized they'd never show white people hanging from trees like that. Like the bodies in the same way that women's nude dead bodies are shown over and over and over, but not right. men's nude dead bodies, the, the dead bodies of people of color, but we can't even show the coffins coming back from Iraq if there are people. Um, and all of the images I've seen of, of brown women in other countries weeping over war. And there's just this kind of abstract, I realized that I kind of thought their pain didn't count the same way as ours did, Mm. that that it was something they just always had. And it didn't, I mean, that's a really hard thing to admit. Yeah. But um, a recent study showed that up to 50% of medical residents believe that black people feel less pain. Right. So these are these ideas are not alone. They, They circulate relentlessly and they keep they keep each other alive. We have to get better at recognizing them and the messages they're sending or we can't resist them. But you put that all together and then you can think about, so what does this look like in Robin's life? What is that going to look like? Right. And that's the lifelong task, right? Not, I couldn't have been exempt from any of this. So what's it look like in my life? You want to be an individual, figure out how your unique life set you up to collude with racism. That's right. I want to give a special shout out to our community of supporters on Patreon who are making it possible for us to create content that matters for citizens who care. Citizen Podcast was designed for truth seekers, bridge builders, and emerging activists who are yearning to make a difference. We're not afraid to ask hard questions and have a radical dialogue about politics and patriarchy, white supremacy and worthiness. And we're serious about showing up for one another and taking action for the well-being of everyone. But making a good podcast takes a village. And so we're building one on Patreon. By joining our Patreon community for as little as $1 per month, you get lots of good stuff from us, like radical meditations, community forums, and lifestyle content that you can trust. Not only does it keep us going, but it keeps us honest and real and pushing the envelope of courageous conversations that are independent, transparent, and authentic. So check us out on patreon.com slash citizenwell and build with us as we create a culture of well-being that works for everyone. So um, I want to I want to get into white fragility. Um, and I think you're already getting towards this, but like, 
you know, I have seen, and I'm sure I have been one of them, um, white folks cling to their defenses and their rationale and their narrative like they are holding on for dear life. And not only does it appear irrational, sometimes it feels like a trauma response, like the Mm -hmm. way in which people react so acutely and adamantly about how they're not racist. Um, and, and so I'm just wondering, like, why, why are people so defensive? Like, what are they, what are they afraid of? Like what's underneath, right? The I'm right. I don't understand you're wrong. You know, we're, we're all one. (laughs) Like what's the underpinning of that? Do you think that causes us to have such an embodied reaction? Yeah. Um, I think there's actually a whole um, bunch of threads. I think about them as threads or pillars that hold that reaction up. Not just one single one, but so many, in fact, that it makes us crazy or like it makes us irrational. So you mentioned trauma. I think there's a kind of moral trauma Mm -hmm. uh, that we sit on because we know what we've done and we know what we're doing. It's not just the past. If you know your history, if it's not the past, So there's this kind of moral trauma that we can't really look at, right? Um, It's unbearable. And along with that goes guilt, but also resentment because we we feel entitled to what we have. And I'm going to say another provocative thing. No white person grows up not knowing it's better to be white. That's right. And not benefiting. Yeah, there's this deep superiority and entitlement to everything, but we can never admit that either because that would mean we were bad people. So that's going on, what I call the good, bad binary, taboos on talking about this, um, feeling that we would have to give up something that's rightfully ours and so that's not fair. Um, You know, myth of scarcity, capitalism, you know, it's kind of all these things. Individualism. Yeah, the place I try to at least help women access it, those who identify as women, is, you know, everything I say about white supremacy, you know, I I could say about patriarchy, right? That from the time a boy is born, pretty much, he knows it's better to be a boy than a girl, right? I mean, you you might have to fight that message, but no little boy knows, doesn't know, uh, it's better to be a boy than a girl. Right. How do you teach boys to be boys? Don't be a girl. Right. Don't be. Don't and then run like the a list girl. Of names don't that, act know, like don't a, a pussy. Don't yeah. be a faggot. Right. Don't be weak. Um, everything is don't be female. Don't be feminine. Don't be a girl. In fact, violence waits you. Seriously. I mean, it's a pretty brutal lesson. That any weakness that boys show, they risk deep violence. That's right. right? So you, you know, you've never known anything outside of that. You internalize it. Right. And then you add all the misogyny in the culture. And, you know, um, I don't know about you, but I, I think male superiority kind of leaks out of their pores. Um, and I, I when I, I have this picture, I often show of the House Freedom Caucus. It's mm-hmm. all these men sitting around a conference table. Mike Pence is in the middle of it. And, you know, because it's such a powerful visual representation of institutional power. That's right. And you look at these men and you know that um, probably every single one of them went to Ivy League schools, 
multimillionaires, expect to be sitting at that table, don't see anyone of value sitting at the, not sitting at the table, uh, would probably not really appreciate you suggesting they should have more uh, women and men and women of color. Uh, and so, you know, you can see it really clearly that that's just, that's how it just is. how they were raised, right? They're always to get to be the smartest people in the room. If you've ever had anybody mansplain something to you, um, right? Which we all have. So, <laughs> yes. So I, I can see it so clearly from them. And then I have to ask myself, you have the same thing around race right. and try to figure out what it looks like because well, people of color, can see my white superiority coming out of my pores. Um, and just because in that room with Mike Pence, I would be acutely aware of patriarchy and sexism. Doesn't mean put me in a room full of white women, bring our friend Michelle in there, and she's not going to be feeling acute white superiority from all the us white women. That's like, right. Like it's, it's intersectional, right? It's not just one or the other. Well, and we have lots of evidence of that, right? With the 53% of white women that voted for Trump, yeah. the right 51% that voted for, like, it's just like, and Susan Collins and the Kavanaugh hearing, it's just pervasive and the evidence yes. to your, and I loved what you said before around like, you can't not see it. Like once you start to see it, it's actually not, it's not hard to see. It's everywhere. Yes. Yes. And we can't trust ourselves fully, right? To see it because- uh, as an insider to it, like it's the same thing when a man, have you ever had a man tell you that he's a feminist? Right. And I don't times. know about you, but what I think <laughs> all the time. Is, uh, yeah, I will be the judge of that. <laughs> like, seriously. Yeah, right. Yeah. Or I get that. to call you a feminist. You don't get to yeah, call and yourself me, a feminist. And really it'd be like in any given moment, how you doing, right? In any given moment, right. am I actually behaving in anti-racist ways, right? Um, so yeah, it's not like a fixed arrival. <laughs> um, so f white fragility. And, and one of the things I, I love about um, the solutions that you offer at the end of this book um, is th that you talk about this idea of like capacity building, which I love, right? Because to me, capacity building is like practice. It's like the anti-habit. It's like what we choose to do every day <laughs> to like stay aware and to be engaged fully and like dismantling, you know, these beliefs and these, these messages that we're constantly getting and disrupting and whatever that looks like, it's like an ongoing constant process. And it's, it's probably never ending for, for at least for me in my life. Um, I assume that I will be on this path forever. Um, and so like, what does, uh, what does capacity building look like in the way in which we learn to respond right, on an everyday basis to the onslaught of white supremacy? Yeah, you, you, well, we probably can't build our capacity in isolation. I mean, that's one piece that white people, we need to work with each other. We need to help each other, challenge And that's the legacy other. of individualism again, right? Yeah. That they yeah. want to keep us apart. They want to keep us in isolation because it continues to uphold the system and we can't organize. Yeah. Um, so we, we need to break silence with one another, but we also have to recognize that in doing that, we will, we will also reinforce our blind spots, of course, right? So we have to also be in relationship across race, you know, and be accountable. Um, so I think about it as building the capacity to, one, just bear witness to the pain of racism, but also bear witness to the pain that I have caused, 
So in those moments when someone gives me feedback and that right there would be um, a moment of incredible trust for a person of color to give me that feedback because most of the time they don't bother because it doesn't usually go well because of white fragility. Can I just bear it? Can I just hold it and, and maybe take it somewhere else and process it, but not, not have to fix it. And I need you to absolve me and tell me I'm okay. And tell me you still love me. Like just, just sit with it. You'll be okay. You'll be fine. Um, we can't get there without making mistakes. And so that's another pattern that I think white progressives have is carefulness. It's so important for us to what we think of as safe face. I don't want you to think I'm racist, right? So I, I have a piece called um, White Fragility and the Question of Trust because so many white people, before they can have a racial dialogue, they need to build trust. And I'm just like, what? It, I've spent you know, weeks asking white people, what is it you need to trust will or won't happen before you can work on racism? And what it came down to was just, I need to trust you won't think I'm racist before I can work on my racism. So <laughs> what I just say is, yeah, the game is up. I think you're racist. We're done with that. Just start from that premise. Yeah, we are racist. Yeah. That's yeah. the beginning then, of the conversation. And, and it's transformative. It's liberating. And then from there, get to work trying to figure out how you're, how you're being racist and stop doing it. That's actually really exciting work. But if we can't let go of this, I, I have to say, face, you can't think I'm racist. It can never show. You will protect all of your racism and you definitely will not be building your capacity. Right. So, so take risks. Yeah. Now be thoughtful, right? There's a difference between careful and thoughtful in my mind, right? Be thoughtful. Don't just, Oh, Hey, I'm going to blurt this thought out. I just had, but perhaps don't I'm be careless. A, a thought that's confusing to me and some, you know, you put mm -hmm. it out there in a thoughtful way. I have to tell you, this is one of the biggest aha, mo aha moments for me in reading your book was, oh. it was when, was when you said, when you talked about trust and I realized as I was reading it, I literally was like in a moment where I was like seeking trust in an interaction at that time. And I was like, damn it, yeah. <laughs> um, I'm doing that thing. <laughs> um, and it, and I realized how that was like an, that was entitlement that I, that I believe that I deserve trust before I can enter into a conversation, um, entitlement that white people have, you know, and that they take for themselves. But you, you said that, um, the message is more important than the messenger, mm -hmm. right? How, where, and when you give me feedback is irrelevant. It is the feedback I want and need and understanding that it is hard to give. I will take it any way I can get it. And that was like a huge holy shit moment for me in reading your book that wow. like, thank you for giving it to me in whatever way you gave it to me. That is the gift. Yeah. Wow. That kind of gave me the chills there. <laughs> and um, it, it was, it was right on time for me, you know, and it was literally yeah. like weeks ago. I mean, it wasn't like years ago. It was like weeks ago. And I'm, I would, I think I feel like I'm far, I'm, I'm in this journey. I'm yeah. like, you know, but to me, like the humility that you keep illuminating around how this is like a process that's constantly unfolding. It's almost like peeling an onion. It's just going to keep going and we're going to get even more clear seeing yeah. about the ways in which we're still operating from that perspective. Yeah. Well, this is another place individualism comes in, I think, because we so 
so attached to ourselves, this identity as individuals, we expect to be trusted automatically, right? Like, well, you don't know me. Why would you assume I'm racist when you don't know me? This is a really common refrain for white people, right? We or I don't get credit for all of the ways I'm great. Oh yeah, we definitely do not like being uh, generalized about, or trust me, I, those are probably the number one thing about the emails I get. It's just like, you know, how dare you generalize about white people? You don't know me. You know, so we, we expect to just kind of appear in front of you as a unique person and you should respond to us as a unique person. Right. And we don't understand, no, you bring your history with you. Uh, and it's a history of harm, quite frankly. And so, no, you have to actually show you're different. Expecting to be automatically trusted is not showing you're different. It's showing you're entitled and unaware of your position as a white person. So while I might just see myself as Robin, Michelle's friend, Michelle sees me as Robin, my white friend, right? That, that's always in there. And, right. and rightly so. In fact, it's wise not to automatically trust us. You know, Ijeoma Oluo, who, who mm -hmm. is a young black woman who's oh, great writer, her, oh my <laughs> everything gosh. she's ever written, look yeah. it up. But she's got this, this piece that has a quote, which is basically white people will let you down every time. Yeah. You know, so, uh, you know, we need to earn trust and not just expect and demand it. Well, and I think that's where the capacity building comes in, because when I think about my addiction to perfectionism, knowing that I'm going to fail every time I engage <laughs> is like a muscle I need to build. Like I need to get good at like falling on my face and fucking up and getting <laughs> back up again and, 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 and making an amends, right? Like not being flimsy or careless about just like flinging my unconsciousness all over the place. But like, to me, it's like the more I can build that muscle around, I can make a mistake and still be in relationship. I can make a mistake and still be human. I can make a mistake and still be whole. Um, it doesn't just determine that good and bad binary that you mentioned. Um, yeah. That to me is like the most important kind of like resilient building practice that not only can I work on for myself, but that I can, sh I can openly and vulnerably share with other white folks. Like I try to model that, that like, oh shit, I just did a humiliating thing and fell on my face again. Let me tell you about that. Yeah, but man, I bet you learned from it. I, I would not be able to articulate, I don't know, a quarter of what I can today if I hadn't made countless mistakes. Totally. And that doesn't mean, you know, unfortunately they are at the expense of, of other That's people, right. but it's that, that carefulness that won't, won't give us those incredibly important learning moments. And, you know, fortunately, um, many, many brilliant and patient mentors, people of color did not give up on me, but that's because they kept seeing something. And maybe it was that I kind of kept going, right? I actually incorporated the lesson I learned from that mistake and then was different. That, that is what I think they're looking for. And that's what I've been told, right? It's like, we don't expect perfection. We know you have this conditioning. Uh, we need you, right, in the struggle. We definitely need you in the struggle. We're not going to give up on you. Um, but what we're looking for is where can we go with you in those moments when it surfaces. Yeah. And if we can't repair it with you, then, then we are probably going to give up or at least not have an authentic relationship. Um, I did have a thought, though. You said we're going to fail. You know, you might not fail every time, yeah. <laughs> right? I mean, you can really have very meaningful interactions. Um, just want to put that out there. Yeah, that's right. Um, 
So go ahead. It's not a recipe for failure, but, but <laughs> be prepared, be prepared to be like fail resilient. <laughs> I, I fail, I fail less, which yeah, means I do right. less harm. Yeah. And then when I do harm, I'm pretty good at cleaning it up. Yeah. Well, and that's, and that's a really good point, right? Is like, how, like, how do we get, um, how do we develop a practice of, of like leaning into repair, right. And not having to oh. save face all the time and like, put, like setting those sort of like, um, uh, shields, if you will, and defenses down of like, I have to self-preserve. I have to save face. I, I can't tolerate be, not knowing or, you know, being seen as not good. Like to me like mm -hmm. that. Um, but I wanted to appreciate, um, what you were saying about like, um, just having like, just really incredible black allies in my life who chose to be in relationship for me for whatever reason mm -hmm. and who served as a mirror in some of those mm -hmm. times when I fell on my face. And we keep talking about Michelle. We're talking about Michelle Cassandra Johnson. Uh, she wrote a book, Skill in Action. She's an incredible, incredible mm -hmm. um, woman, which <laughs> author of Skill in Action. Oh, by the way, she does uh, racial justice training and has a website. She does have a website and I, I think really it's, good. I think it's skillinaction.com. I think it's um, Michelle Johnson, social worker.com. <laughs> Michelle Johnson, social worker.com or skillinaction.com. Cause she's really good. Um, yeah. Yeah. She's uh, in trainer. On incredible. And she's, she's also been on the show. So we love her and we talk about mm -hmm. her all the time. Um, but I wanted to just acknowledge that and, and Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams and Anasa Troutman and Nikki Myers. I mean, these are women who have just, um, shown up for me when they didn't have to and really transformed my life um, and shown up for me with compassion and patience. Um, and so I wanted to, to, to name that. And I also wanted to acknowledge that, and you talk about this in your book, that we also can't rely on or lean on black women to be the teachers for white people in this particular moment, mm -hmm. especially given the burden that they've been carrying for yeah. all of time, for having to, to you know, um, I mean, we're white women talking about about racism. Um, but black women have been telling us about racism forever. <laughs> mm -hmm. And it seems like, you know, now we're finally getting the message. Um, so I wanted to ask you about the role of white on white organizing and, and white folks working with white folks to do some of this consciousness raising um, and to have these vulnerable conversations and, and without causing such a mess um, and impacting uh, people of color and, and black folks. Um, uh, um, so intensely. Um, and, and, and I, cause I know you talk about this in, in the book, right? That white folks can work with white folks to break the silence, but I'm just wondering if you, uh, not only what do you think about that, but, but what, what do you think are the best practices of how white folks can work with white folks? Cause I think it's, it does seem like there should be some, like to your, to use your word, some careful yeah. <laughs> and intentional and skilled application of the way in which we organize together so that we don't replicate, um, you know, the dominance of whiteness and centering whiteness and kind of getting back into that loop all over again. Yeah. Um, so, so I just want to say a thought about people of color in our lives so many people of color have put themselves in position to teach white people. They write, they speak. That's right. Um, hopefully they get paid. They're out there. That information's out there. It, it's the problem is when we just go to anybody randomly and expect that from them, right? And across relation to power. Um, 
so I, I want to acknowledge that. I also think that if we truly integrate our lives and think about what would it take to integrate our lives and we just have cross-racial relationships, you don't have to ask anything. You That's just right. learn by being in each other's lives. You see things you would not have seen before. People begin to talk more openly around you because uh, generally people of color talk way more openly about race when we're not around. <laughs> so you begin to kind of be in those conversations. I mean, there, there's, it, it doesn't mean we can't access it. It's just the really um, important to be conscious of the power dynamics of doing so. Right. And 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 to, just to like put a pin on what you just said, yeah. we're not talking about allyship or like the no. motivation of being in relationships so that we can benefit. You're talking about authentic relationships, yes. like how we show up just for the sake of showing up. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but of course, white on white. So it's the first thing is that, you know, it's the master's tools dilemma. Audre Lorde. That's right. Quote, right. How do you dismantle the master's house with only the master's tools? There, there really isn't a clean way to do it, but, but it must be done. So it's a both end. Um, when white people get together, they will inadvertently uh, be reinforcing some white consciousness or dynamics because that's what we have, right? And we're using kind of, I think about it as a colonized mind to unpack a colonized, the colonized mind. So just kind of keep that in mind and then know that there will be patterns um, and they do not self-manage. I've never known a group to self-facilitate. So I think you have to have a really conscious facilitator or set of facilitators to watch out for um, white people slipping into um, the things we like to slip into, which is intellectualizing, philosophizing, talking about society, talking about all the other white people who just don't get it, <laughs> asking, asking um, how do I tell so-and-so about your, their racism? You know, there are, there are three top questions I get whenever I give a talk. And let me just say for the record, I hate them. <laughs> tell the us how you really feel, Robin. <laughs> the first one is, what do I do? I just find that the most disingenuous question. <laughs> um, if it's, for a lot of people listening to me, that's the first time in their life they've ever thought about this. And 45 minutes later, they're ready to be given the answer. I think just to expect to be given the answer is problematic as if there is one. And two, you know, they're not going to do anything that I say, right? If I say, oh, here's what you do. They're not going to go home and do it. Most, most are not. So I guess I just say um, in response to that one, how have you managed not to know? It's 2019. Why don't you know? How are you like an educated yeah, professional yeah, yeah. person engaged in society and, and are just realizing this? Yeah, how do you how the hell is that possible? So take out a piece of paper and start writing it down and there's your map. Okay? Yeah. Or Google. Hello. Yeah. I love to say, what would you do if there was something you really <laughs> wanted to know? Google the shit out of it. So really for a lot of white people, just taking the initiative and breaking with the apathy. Yeah. Okay. The other question I really don't like is, um, so how do I tell so-and-so about their racism? And my response to that is, well, how would I tell you about yours? Nice. And then I just look at them. My point is that question presumes, of course, it isn't me. I'm just going to go forth and change all the other white people. And then the, the third question is, how do I raise my children? So please. Um, <laughs> <laughs> let me give you the answer to that in one one <laughs> in one email. And again, yeah. and again, there's information on all those things, but 
I, I kind of digress there to make the point that white groups need to work on this, but these are the patterns that they can slip into. Yeah. I, we just finished a reader's guide for white fragility. Oh, great. And so the reader's guide has really good reflection questions for the end of every chapter. They're all designed to take you deeper, not to get you in your head and take you out. Nice. Um, also, it opens with common patterns when white people talk about racism and how to facilitate those patterns. That's great. So it's really um, inclusive and um, detailed. So Anyway, those are my thoughts about when white, white, we, we have to get together, but we have to be really conscious. Well, and one of the most important things that, um, that you mention in your book that I think sh should be spoken about in all of these conversations mm -hmm. is just how adaptive white supremacy and racism has been over time. Right. Like, um, and, and, and how, and how, like, even our definition of racism has like like has evolved so that it can benefit us. You you talk about how it has a criteria of like racism as only being individual, only when it's conscious, only when it's intentional. Mm -hmm. And I think disrupting that ideology mm -hmm. <laughs> is really essential to understanding the, the way in which it is the water that we are swimming in. Yeah, because that so beautifully protects it. As long as it has to be intentional, like well, we're pretty much done. I mean, one, most most of the time, it's not intentional. But if it was, who's going to admit that? I mean, you couldn't come up with a better, this is actually legal, right? This is this is the legal definition is intentional. This is why it's why discrimination might be illegal, but you basically cannot prove it. Because you have to prove intent. Could you come up with a better way to make it meaningless to be illegal? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. That's problematic. And it's probably the first thing that anybody says, any white person says, is I did not mean to. Totally. But that wasn't my intention. We do that a lot in the, the spiritual wellness community because yeah. it's all about good intentions and oh, love yeah. and light. Or you misunderstood me. And I always like to offer, you know, what if in fact the person didn't misunderstand you at all? They actually understood exactly what you meant. What you don't understand is how what you meant is coming from a racist paradigm. That's right. Wouldn't that just be an amazing thing to consider? <laughs> that it's you who is missing something. I wish, no, I, I want to shake white people and just say, is it possible you don't actually know something? Yeah. Here, here's my little vent here when I get these mansplaining emails. What qualifies you to determine whether this is or isn't legitimate? I mean, our arrogance is just, particularly when racism comes from us, not at us, and we're so invested and benefit from it. Uh, and yet we are so confident that we're objective and they aren't. My God. As if. <laughs> um, I want to ask you about positive white identity. This is my final question oh. and I think Ooh. it's the I think it's the hardest one if yes. I'm being honest because I know that this is something as I unpack my own whiteness and also like um and also like lean into like the where I come from and my lineage and how I got here and and all of the history to your, that you mentioned before that I'm carrying literally in my body mm -hmm. into every interaction and into my perspective and understanding of the world and Ruby Sales um, did a podcast on on being that's so great and she talked about how we need a new white liberation theology and I don't even know if I understand what that means but I think it has a little bit something to do with that question that you asked at the end of your book is a positive white identity possible 
And that's my question to you. Is it? Because it feels uh, awfully tricky to me. Oh, yeah. Well, there are many approaches to this work. And those who are listening who maybe have been involved in it over time know there's different approaches. There's the white people have lost something really deep when they gave up their ethnicity to become white and they need to reclaim that. Um, that actually just has no salience for me. That does nothing for me. I, I don't connect to it. I don't see how reclaiming my Italian heritage is going to change white supremacy. So, so that's fine if it works, but it doesn't work for me. Yeah. And this idea that there could be a positive Id- white identity, I just don't think it can because there's no white outside of white supremacy. There's no white people. I mean, I think Tanahesi Coates talks about the dream of being white. Like it's, it's this, it's this illusion. It doesn't or the mean privilege, it doesn't, like yeah. as if. It doesn't mean it doesn't have meaning as a social construction, profound meaning. Uh, it doesn't mean that we don't perform it because, because we do, right? Um, but it didn't exist before we needed to make up race in order to justify enslavement and genocide. And both uh, Tenehisi Coates and Ibram Kende, uh, Ibram Kende in his uh, Stamped from the Beginning. Yeah, great book. Definitive Ideas of Uh, the definitive history of racist ideas in America argue, they both argue that you have, first you have racism and then you have race. See, many people would say, if you ask them, how long has racism been around? Oh, forever. People are just afraid of difference and they just prefer to be with their own. No, it's a relatively new idea. It's constructed. You start with the exploitation of a group of people who have something you want and you can exploit them. In, In this case, labor and land. And then you make up a story to justify exploiting them. So, so you had racism and then you made up race as the justification. So, so white didn't exist. It's just an inherently oppressive identity. And I don't know that we can reclaim it in some kind of way. So I look at it as trying to be less white, a little less white. So what does it mean to be a little less white? It means be a little less oppressive, less arrogant, um, more humble, listen more, believe more, be less defensive, be more aware and educated, be less apathetic. Like these are all kind of classic white characteristics around race, arrogance, certitude, apathy, resentment, entitlement, superiority. How about we modify those a little bit, bring them down a little bit. I don't know that I can be free of them, but I can certainly try to minimize them. And in so doing, minimize the harm uh, of having been raised to be white. I don't know if that helps. Yeah, like um, it's almost like um, if we take a stance of harm reduction at all times, then that might become a practice of being less white in the context of where we are right now. Yeah, if, if I go to sexism again, this is, and I do this a lot because it just helps me when I, yep. when I wanna unpack something, I just think about men and women. Um, and it could, if a man just says, I'm just not gonna be a man anymore, I'm not gonna be masculine anymore. I mean, he can't throw off his socialization, but he can be way less of an asshole a way more um, open, challenge all of his 
misogyny that he, you know, you can't help but the, or name it at live least. in a women, woman hating culture. You, right. you have to have internalized some of that. Work on that. Bring it down. If it shows, don't be defensive about it. You know, listen to women. That is a man that I would want to be around, that I would consider um, an ally to me. Um, but he can't just say, I'm not male anymore. And, and I mean, not, I'm not talking about trans issues. I'm talking about yeah. a man who doesn't want to have been um, shaped by patriarchy. Right. It's not like a cloak you can throw off. It's a process. Anyway, that's how I visualize it. <laughs> so if we are um, doing this constant work to decolonize our minds and our bodies from all of these ideologies that we've mentioned in our conversation, white supremacy, individualism, um, and so on and so forth. What is, what is the new belief system that mm-hmm. we, we need to, to, um, to center um, if we are to move forward at my towards, I don't know. I don't know what towards being in the room together, towards thriving together, towards just learning how to be in more authentic relationship together. Like, I don't know what like the vision is because it sounds trite to be like where we're all free. And, you know, but like if we're moving in the direction of like learning how to be together with more integrity, authenticity, love, what is what do you believe is like the new ideology that that and I don't I don't mean to like replicate or replace one ideology with another. But to me, like there, there has to be a belief that we need to start to center in our conversations and remind ourselves of that helps dismantle those old ideologies. Yeah, that's a deep question. Uh, I, you know, in some ways, the first thing I think of is I don't know what it would look like because we've never seen it. Right. Right. Um, but I can just think about what I strive for. And I think the first thing is until we dismantle hierarchy, and I don't think that's happening in my lifetime, I'm not sure it will ever happen, but it is a goal. Uh, as long as there has been human domination, there has been human struggle for justice, human struggle not to dominate. That is as old and as natural as, as domination. So I remember that. So in order Mm. to have a more just society until we get there, I need to always be cognizant of my position in relation to one another because we are in a hierarchy. hierarchy. We just are. There's a hierarchy and we've all been placed in it. And so I need to always be cognizant In, in this moment, in this room, what is my position and how do I best use it to open and challenge that hierarchy rather than just support it and reinforce it. That's like social so, location, right? Yeah. So like location. what is my proximity to power? What is my proximity to access and privilege and all the things? And it moves in and out, right? So I think about what, if you put me at that table with Mike Pence and all those people, definitely patriarchy and sexism would be really strong. And I, it's not like I wouldn't play a role in the room, but it would be different than the role I could play if I was a man in that right? But when I get into the other room, it's just all white women and just one or two women of color, then the for context me, race changes. is really salient. And, and I, what role can I play to make sure that those women are heard, that there's space? Um, it just, 
in those ways you are trying to, if not dismantle, bring down those hierarchies. Yeah. And, and you have to use your position to do it. You have to pay attention. You have to always be paying attention. And you won't get it right by everybody. You can't. But get it as right as you can as often as you can. Yeah. <laughs> by thinking strategically and intentionally. You know, the moment you kind of relax and are off your game, out it slips. You know, I tell that story at the end of the book of that racism I ran at that woman. I mean, I was just off my game. I was so relaxed. I was with my two friends and I just took for granted, wow, a way of interacting that I yeah, had not earned. So, you know, you kind of just have to stay on your game. And then if you screw up, clean it up, clean up your mess. <laughs> I so appreciate that about you. I appreciate your, your, your candidness. And I appreciate the way in which you do tell the stories of making mistakes and repair and what you learn and how you get back up and how you move forward. And I certainly try to, to do that in my own practice, but I do think that there is an unlock inside of that, that takes a lot of the sting and defensiveness yeah. out of the way in which we are in relationship with, um, with this work. And, and I just, I, I just, I just love like social locating as like a constant practice yeah. of like awareness and revealing and naming and leaning in and repairing and, and how it's just like ongoing all the time. Mm -hmm. And it's like when we're, when it's the, when the off switch, yeah, that's when shit goes down yeah. and that's when harm happens. And so how can we just keep that light on at all times so that we're just yeah. steadfast and, still be and diligent and relaxed and real. Totally. That's right. <laughs> and oh, and still be order. compassionate and kind and human. Right. Yeah. I, I have said many times there's nothing more intellectually, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually challenging and stimulating than this work. That's right. Uh, and yet like, for me, what's the point of being alive? You know, yes, it's hard and it's painful. And oh my God, is it rewarding and deep. I don't, yeah. I don't think anything has ever put me up against my learning edge than being a white person struggling in, you know, to challenge racism. I totally agree. And I've been doing transformational work forever. And I tell people all the time, I was like, you want to transform, get into this work because yeah. there is no greater mirror for who we are and where we are and, and, and where we need to go and how we need to get there yeah. than dismantling racism. So welcome to the transformational experience. Yeah. <laughs> Robin, thank you so much. Thank you for, um, for writing and for leaning in and for doing all that you've done to like um, to get where you are in your understanding and to get yeah. brave enough and courageous enough to name your experience in all of this. Um, and for the way in which you're, I, I feel like in some ways it's like, I can't wait to see what you do next. Cause it's huh. going to continue to help our collective community peel the onion yeah. <laughs> and yeah. continue to like I, I lift ideas. the veil. <laughs> Good. I well, love you, that. We'll keep it coming. You are lovely to talk to. Thank you are you. a wonderful interviewer. And um, I've definitely found this valuable. So thank you so much. Yeah, thanks, Robin. And I look forward to seeing more of you in the future. Thanks. Bye-bye. While this podcast is coming to an end, our work in the world is just beginning. This week's call to action is to see your whiteness for what it is and to cultivate an everyday and sustained practice of transforming your defensive and fragile behaviors so that we can engage more productively. 
Get the book if you don't have it already at Beacon Press and download the free reader's guide at robindiangelo.com. Special thanks to our producer Trevor Exter and DJ Drez for the amazing soundtrack. You can check out his music at djdrez.com. And thank you for being here today. You can stay in the know and engaged by subscribing to our weekly newsletter, Well Read, at citizenwell.org. Citizen Podcast is community-inspired and crowdsourced. That's how we keep it real. Join our community on Patreon for as little as $1 per month so that we can keep doing the work of curating content that matters for citizens who care. And don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts and share the love by telling your friends to check us out. And feel the music soothe, breath of fresh air, channeling the most hot. This is good times.